Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets forth several contrasts before us as citizens of His kingdom. He contrasts two types of righteousness, godly righteousness and self-righteousness. Two treasures, one heavenly, one earthly. Two masters, God and money. Two types of judgment, righteous and hypocritical. And while these contrasts seemingly apply that as kingdom citizens we have a choice between two opposing righteousness or two opposing treasures or two masters, two judgments, the reality is we do not. We do not. It is as Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He also revealed in Matthew 6.21 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, my friends, there is only one choice for believers. And the choice reveals whether or not we're genuinely kingdom citizens. Now, having expounded much on these contrasts, Jesus is drawing His sermon to an end, and He's forcing His disciples, He's forcing you and I, to make a decision. And so here in Matthew seven thirteen to 14 He sets before them and before us a choice between two ways. A choice between two ways. The narrow and the broad way. And which way we choose determines in which kingdom we hold our citizenship. Each of you must examine yourself and ask what road, what way are you on and then whether or not you are a citizen of God's kingdom or whether you are a citizen of Satan's kingdom. Now you might hesitate and say, well wait a minute pastor, is not Jesus preaching to the disciples? Yes, Jesus is preaching to the disciples. Well now, Pastor, wait a minute. Are you saying that someone could be a disciple and not be a kingdom citizen? Yes, that's what I'm saying. You see, while all kingdom citizens are disciples, not every disciple is a kingdom citizen. I'll say that again. Every citizen of God's kingdom is a disciple. But not every disciple is a citizen of that kingdom. I want you to consider the words of John chapter 6 and verse 66. John 6, 66. As, all, as a result of this, many disciples withdrew and walked with Jesus no more. You see, through the first five chapters of the book of John, Jesus had a large, vast number of disciples following Him. But when He drew the proverbial line in the sand of what it means to genuinely follow Him, many just up and quit and followed Him no more. They weren't genuine. They weren't truly disciples. They were disciple in name only. You see, for someone to be a genuine disciple of Jesus, they must repent of their sins and believe the gospel. If they're going to be a genuine disciple, they must repent of their sins and believe the gospel. However, anyone can profess repentance 
Anyone can say, yes, I repented of my sin. Anybody can profess belief. Sure, I believe the gospel. Again, talk is cheap. You can profess it and not be a genuine disciple, not be a genuine Christian. Paul's warning in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, confirms that someone can profess repentance and belief and still not be genuine. Listen to what Paul says. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. They have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away. Let me outline for you the six statements that Paul just made. He says, number one, these individuals had been enlightened. In other words, they professed conversion and they had been baptized. Two, they tasted of the heavenly gift. In other words, they enjoyed the fellowship of the local church. They sat under the teaching of the local church. Third, he says they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they've shared in that pre-salvation ministry of conviction and confession. Yeah, I feel bad about my sins. Yes, I'm a sinner. Number four, they've tasted the good word of God. Oh, they've heard the preaching, they've listened to the preaching, but they haven't done the word. They've heard the word, but not the doer of the word. And number five, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. Listen, they serve the Lord. And all the while they're serving the Lord, they're also practicing godlessness. And then look at number six. They have fallen away. They willingly turned away from God's word and embraced godlessness in the church. Now you say, well, Pastor, they just, they just fell into sin. And, and I'm sure they're going to be restored. Hmm. Notice what Paul continues to say in verse 6. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. What? It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Because they have again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Let's take a moment. Let's take a beat. Think about that. Consider that statement. It's impossible to bring them back to repentance. That someone could be beyond repentance is a terrifying statement. And it should cause all of us to shudder. It should cause all of us to stop and think. Oh, this must be a hypothetical, unattainable situation. No. Paul presents a very real condition that should give us pause. You know, it's possible to be, to be baptized and to confess salvation and to, to be in the church and work in the church and, and, and go along and do all the church things and then at the same time be dabbling in godlessness. And at some point there comes a time when that individual says, I'm tired of faking it. I just out and out done with it. 
And to those individuals, he says, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And so is it any wonder why Jesus presents to us a choice between the narrow and the broad way? They say, well, what is a way? That Greek word, hodas, refers to a road, a street, a path. But it's also used metaphorically to talk about one's behavior, one's conduct, one's way of life. Which is the meaning in which Jesus is drawing from. See, it's easy to be a disciple. It's easy to say, yes, I believe, yes, I've confessed my sin. It's easy to be one of those things that Paul described. So how do we know if the disciple is real? How do we know if they're genuine? How do you know if you're the real deal? How do you know if you're genuine? It's determined by the choice you make between the two ways. The broad road, or the broad way, and the narrow way. Just because you claim to be a disciple does not make you a genuine kingdom citizen. Genuine discipleship is tested by the way you choose. It's tested by the behavior you exhibit. And so again, Jesus presents to us two ways here in Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Two ways and the kingdom citizen. Now this is nothing new. A choice between two ways of life is not new. The Greek and Romans often employed such a choice in their writings. Biblically, the idea of two ways was first developed in Deuteronomy 30 in verse 15. Deuteronomy 30, 15 says, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. You've got a choice. Which one are you going to choose? Moses sets before Israel. Are you going to choose life or death? Are you going to choose prosperity or adversity? As well in Psalm chapter 1 and verse uh, 6, he talks about, it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice there in Psalm 1 that there is a contrast between the righteous way and the wicked way. Between the narrow way and the broad way. Let's take a moment and examine Psalm 1. If you have a paper and you're taking notes, you can do this. Put on the left side of your page the way of the righteous. Draw a line. Divide the other half of the page and write the way of the wicked. So we're going to start with the way of the righteous in verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 1. The way of the righteous, number one, delights in the way of the Lord. Verse 2. The righteous delights in the way of the Lord. Verse 2. The righteous meditates on the Lord's law day and night. Verse 2. The way of the righteous meditates on the Lord's law day and night. Verse 3. The way of the righteous yields fruit. It yields fruit. Verse 3. And the way of the righteous prospers. Again, verse 3. So the way of the righteous delights in the way of the Lord, meditates on the Lord's law day and night, yields fruit and prospers. Now let's go to the other side of the page, the way of the wicked. You see, the wicked are void of character, verse 4. The wicked will not stand in God's presence, verse 5. They're void of character, verse 4. They will not stand in God's presence, verse 5. Also in verse 5, the way of the wicked will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. They will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. And then verse 6. If the way of the righteous prospers, well, the way of the wicked perishes. And so the way of the wicked, void of character, will not stand in God's presence, will not stand in the assembly of the righteous, and perishes. 
the narrow way, the broad way. Now specifically, Jesus typifies the ways as the narrow way and the broad way. And his choice of terms of narrow and broad were not without purpose. You see, the narrow and broad way was a common imagery used in non-biblical Jewish writings of the day, such as 4th Ezra and the Testament of Abraham. And it's interesting because in those non-biblical writings, the Jewish writers said that if one chooses the narrow way, it leads to life. And if one chooses the narrow way, it leads to destruction. And so Jesus takes that He takes Psalm 1, he takes Deuteronomy 30, and he gives us a choice to determine whether we're genuine or not. Are you on the narrow way, or are you on the broad way? Now Jesus begins with the narrow way. Let's look at Matthew 7. We're going to read the first part of verse 13 and then jump down to verse 14. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. He says, Enter. Through the narrow gate. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Enter through the narrow gate. Folks, that there is even a choice of which way to take. Or which, there's a choice of which life to live. Is inerrant right here in the command, enter. That verb, enter, esarkomai, it's a second person imperative. It means, he's speaking this command to his disciples, to us, and he's commanding us, make a choice. Your choice is between two ways. One way leads to life, the other way leads to destruction. Now, the narrow way can only be entered through a narrow gate. The gate is also depicted as small. Now, here's what's unique and interesting. Both narrow and small are the same Greek term. Enter through the stenos gate. For the gate is stenos. He's emphasizing it's narrow, it is small. In other words, the gate is restrictive. The gate is restrictive. There is a limitation. There is a boundary set upon those who want to enter the narrow way. In just a few verses, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me in that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, except for those who do the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Only those will enter. Now, what is the Father's will? Well, the Father's will is codified in His law. Now, of course, God's law is the standard of God's righteousness. God's law teaches us how to be holy. But we understand that keeping God's law does not save us. It does not save us. It doesn't merit salvation. So what then does he mean? He that does the will of my Father is the one who enters. What is the will of my Father? 
that you and I must obey in order to enter the narrow gate. Peter reveals in 2 Peter 3.9 the answer. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, my friends, Peter reveals to us that it is not God's will that any would perish. That is literally suffer eternal damnation. It's not God's will for anyone to suffer damnation, eternal damnation, but that everyone would come to repentance. Now let's not misunderstand Peter's statement. Though it's not God's will for people to suffer eternal damnation, many will. But again, people are not perishing. Here's what, here's what this means. People are not perishing because God chose them to perish. They're perishing because they chose not to repent. Did you catch that? They perish because they chose not to repent. Also, though it is God's will that all would repent, not all are going to repent. Listen, Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5 and verse 40, You are unwilling to come. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Right out of the mouth of Jesus, he told the Pharisees, You chose of your own will, of your own volition, not to come to me for life. Now that brings us to a question. Does someone's failure to repent mean that God's will is defeated? If God isn't willing for people to suffer eternal damnation, if God is willing for all to come to repentance, and if someone doesn't come to repentance, if someone chooses to perish, does that mean God's will is defeated? No. You want to know why? Because God is sovereign. And any choice that He gives humanity does not impugn His character nor defeat His will. You see, in His omniscience, that's all His all-knowingness, in His omnipotence, that is His all-powerfulness, God can design a plan by which He gives you and I a choice. And at the same time, that choice will always conform to His will. That's how powerful God is. Now again, let's come back to the question. What is the Father's will that we must do in order to enter the narrow gate? Well, it's right in the Messianic Proclamation. Repent and believe the gospel. Acts 17 and verse 30 says this, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. There it is. Only those who turn to God by repenting of their sin and believing that Jesus, the Son of God, shed His blood, died for sin, buried, rose again the third day, will enter the narrow gate. <coughs> My friends, this gate is so restrictive that according to Jesus, there are few who find it. Now there's a corollary passage here in Luke 13.24 Jesus says, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but will not be able. Strive to enter. Now that verb strive, the Greek word there is agonizomai. 
We get our English term agonize. But it means that we're to exert every effort. We're to struggle with every fiber of our being. And only those who exert an effort, only those who struggle, will find and enter the narrow gate. You see, I got news for you folks, and bad news for some of you maybe. Salvation is not achieved by raising a hand. It's not achieved walking an aisle. It's not achieved by coming forward. And it's not achieved by making a profession. That isn't going to merit you salvation. Salvation only comes by repenting and believing the gospel. It's difficult, Jesus says, to enter the narrow way. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12, Jesus says this. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. Now, unfortunately, that is a very poor translation of the Greek text. And I say it's a poor translation because that verse makes no sense. Think about that. The kingdom of heaven is suffering violence? That makes it sound like it's what? Under attack. And violent men take it by force? That sounds like wicked people are going to somehow take a hold of the kingdom of God. That's not what it says though in the text. That verb suffers violence. Biazo, it's middle voice. It means it's pressing ahead relentlessly. And the term violent men, biastes, describes those who relentlessly labor to enter that kingdom. Let me read to you the same verse in a different gospel. In Luke 16, 16, it's translated there this way. The gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. They're striving to get into it. So I think we'd be much better to render Matthew eleven twelve this way. As literally as we can. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, presses ahead relentlessly. Listen, the kingdom of heaven is going forward. It's not stopping. And only the relentless will press their way into it. You see, the point Jesus is making there in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12 is that entering the narrow way, entering God's kingdom is difficult. And why is it so difficult? Because it can only be entered by those who repent of their sin and believe the gospel. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Believing the gospel is the easy part. Believing the gospel is the easy part. It's that repentance of sin that is so difficult. Well, how hard is it to say, I'm sorry? Well, that's not repentance, folks. Without repentance, no one will enter God's kingdom. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. Repentance is a separation from sin. So what is repentance? Well, repentance can be defined this way. It is confessing, detesting, and loathing sin and crying out to God for the power to overcome it. It is confessing, detesting, and loathing sin and crying out to God for the power to overcome it. Consider the rich young ruler. He approached Jesus. He said, listen, I've obeyed all the law. And I want to know what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So Jesus tells him, well, I want you to go and sell all your possessions and give, your pro- give the proceeds of the sale to the poor. Right away, Jesus pointed out this man had a problem with greed, the sin of greed. And the only antidote to his greed was repentance. You see, by selling his possessions and giving the proceeds to the poor, he would have demonstrated the fruit of genuine repentance. But he couldn't do it. He was too greedy. He couldn't repent. And he went away grieving. And so Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 23, Truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew Henry puts it this way. The kingdom of heaven was never intended to indulge the ease of triflers, but to be the rest of those who labor. And so Jesus says there are few who find it. There's few who find the narrow gate. Forget the narrow way, they can't find the gate. Now the term few, oligos, it refers to a small but indefinite number of people. Over in Luke, in the Sermon on the Plain, after teaching the people to seek His kingdom in chapter 12 and verse 30, Jesus says this, Do not be afraid, little flock. Little flock. Now that phrase, little flock, the adjective little there, micros, micro, is in the attributive position, and what that means is that Jesus' followers are a, are a group of below average quantity. The true followers of Jesus, true kingdom citizens, are a relatively small number. He declares his followers to be small or in number or quantity. Now, folks, that runs counterintuitive to the church growth movement, doesn't it? You better believe it. You see, the church growth movement promotes the idea that a healthy church is a church that can be measured in terms of quantity. In other words, the bigger the church, the better the church, right? No. That's not God's way. Being many in number does not equate with God's blessing. See, God looks for quality, not quantity. He's interested in quality of character. He's quality of conduct, not large congregations. We can't sit and look at a ministry and say, Oh, wow, look how many people. They must be being blessed by God. Not necessarily. Nor can we look at a small church and say, Oh, man, they're not being blessed by God. Not necessarily. You've got to not look at the quantity. You've got to look at the quality. Few find it. That same term, few, is used in Matthew 22 and verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. I'm sure you've heard that before. Many are called, few are chosen. That verse has been twisted out of context so many times it's not funny, but let's go to Matthew 22 and and, uh, let's work through the context. In Matthew 22, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast given by a king for his son. And so in the parable, the invitations go out and people are invited to come to the wedding. But many refuse the invitation. 
So it went out to many, but many refused the invitation. After several attempts, the invite was sent out a final time. This time, a few respond to the invite and came to the wedding. However, pump the brake. One individual was found at the wedding feast improperly dressed. And he was bound and kicked out. Now, it's important to note here. The invitation went out to the many, but only a few were chosen. Now, by what standard did the king choose who attended the wedding feast? I mean, invitations went out to everybody. What did, what, how did the king choose those who would attend? Number one, first, they were chosen on the basis that they responded to the invitation. Okay? They responded. Because they responded, they are now designated as the chosen. Second, not only on the basis that they responded to the invitation, but second, on the basis that they're properly attired. Okay? You got to come dressed right. And those who responded no to the invitation, and those not properly attired, according to Matthew 22, were destroyed and cast out into outer darkness. That is the lake of fire. So someone that refuses the invitation, and even those who do say yes to the invitation, but don't come properly attired, are cast into the lake of fire. You see, just like in that parable, the call to salvation, the call to discipleship, the call to be a kingdom citizen is an invitation sent out to everyone. And the invitation is addressed, repent and believe the gospel. Now folks, there are people who outright get that invitation and reject it. Automatic rejection. You go on the lake of fire. But some respond. Yes, I'll come. Oh, they've made a profession. Yes, I'll repent. Yes, I'll believe the gospel. But they come improperly attired. They made a profession of faith, but they never genuinely repented of their sin. How do you know that, Pastor? Because they don't have the grace clothes on. They still got the grave clothes on. They've never been redeemed. They've never been regenerated. They've never put on, been clothed in Christ's righteousness. And so only those who respond and are properly attired, genuinely repentant, clothed in Christ's righteousness, will be the chosen of God. Now, let's remember, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. Let's remember that he's challenging us as disciples to make a choice between two ways. Now, listen, at this stage... Matthew chapter 7, all the people on that mountainside are disciples. All of them have professed faith. All of them have said they're repentant. But my friends, repent or profession means nothing. Talk's cheap. Anyone can fool everyone else into thinking they're a genuine disciple. Hey, listen, that could be you. You could be sitting there and fooling me. You could be fooling everybody in this room that you're a genuine disciple, that you're a kingdom citizen. 
Oh, Pastor, I got a hard time believing that. Okay. Let me ask you something. Who is sitting on this mountain with Jesus? The disciples. Specifically, the 12 disciples. And one of those disciples was who? Ah, Judas. Judas fooled everybody, didn't he? Except Jesus, but he fooled everybody else. And considering the way Judas chose, it's evident he was not genuine. He chose the broad way, not the narrow way. So genuine disciples are going to choose the narrow gate. How? By repenting of their sin and believing the gospel. And here's the evidence you want to look for in your life. Have you accepted the command of Christ? Repent and believe the gospel. Have you exercised genuine repentance? That, In other words, have you confessed your sin? Have you forsaken your sin? That's where it gets tough. Oh man, I'm really sorry. Okay, big deal. Have you forsaken it? And do you detest it? And cry out to God for the ability to overcome it. And then number three, have you completely surrendered to Jesus' demands? Have you completely surrendered to Jesus' demand? He says, strive to enter. It's hard work. Because you've got to stop depending on yourself, and you've got to forsake your sin, and, and, and you've got to for, uh, detest your sin, and confess your sin, and cry out to God. And it's so hard. Look at the rich man. As bad as he wanted the kingdom of heaven, he couldn't get there. Now those who enter the narrow gate will walk the narrow way. It is a narrow way. Now the word narrow here, thalibo, thalibo, not the same word that we had earlier, is it? This word describes the narrow way as being a way that causes hardship, affliction, and persecution. In other words, friend, if you choose to walk the narrow way, you are going to live a life of hardship, affliction, and persecution. After preaching the gospel and making disciples, Paul and Barnabas admonished the new disciples in Acts 14.22 by saying this, Through many tribulations, through many hardships, through many afflictions, through much persecution, we must enter the kingdom of God. Listen, I don't want to sell you a bill of goods. Being a disciple, being a kingdom citizen, being a follower of Jesus is not going to be easy. Now you've got to ask yourself, is this a path that you're willing to undertake? Now I will say this, that according to Matthew 5, 10 to 11, those who suffer affliction, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for walking the righteous way, will be blessed with the kingdom of heaven. And, and so in one sense, yes, life is difficult, but it is worth it. It is worth taking because the end is the reward of the kingdom of heaven. But you've got to know going in. You've got to know before you enter that gate. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be, go through hardship. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. You're going to lose family. You're going to lose friends if you're really going to walk this path. Before entering that narrow gate, you really need to count the cost. You need to consider whether or not you're prepared for hardship, for affliction, for persecution. How did the early church understand this? You know, I think that's a genuine question to ask. You know, I'd like to know how the, people, how the original people <laughs> responded. I mean, we want to make sure that we're not going off on some crazy rabbit trail here. So how did the original disciples 
take this? Well, in 1895, they wrote a book called the Didache, the Lord's Teachings through the Twelve Apostles. And right in chapter 1, let me read you verse 1. There are two ways. <laughs> Listen, they get it right out the gate. There's two ways, one of life, one of death, and a great difference between the two ways. And then they define the way of life. First, you shall love the Lord God who made you. Second, your neighbor is yourself. And all things whatsoever thou wouldest do or should not occur to thee, thou also should not do to another. And of the sayings, the teaching is this, bless them that curse you, pray for your enemies, fast for them that persecute you. For what thank is there if you love them that love you? Do not also the Gentiles do the same? But do you love them that hate you? You shall not have an enemy. Abstain thou from fleshly and worldly lust. If one gives a blow upon thy right cheek, turn to him the other also, and you will be perfect. If one impresses thee for one mile, go with him too. If one takes away your cloak, give him your coat. If one takes from thee thine own, and ask it not back, for indeed thou art not able. Give to every one that asks you, ask it not back. For the Father willeth that to all should be given of our own blessings, free gifts. Happy is he that giveth according to the commandment, for he is guiltless. Now, if you're sitting there saying, boy, that sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? You heard it in the Sermon on the Mount. Right out of the gate, first teaching, you've got a choice between the way of life and the way of destruction. The narrow way, the broad way. And you want to know if you're walking the narrow way, here's what the narrow way looks like. Listen, it is hard and difficult. It is hard to love our enemies. It is difficult to pray and forgive our persecutors. It is hard to abstain from lust. It is difficult not to retaliate and to practice non-resistance. And nonetheless, despite the hardship, despite the difficulties, the narrow way is the only way that results in blessing. It is the way that leads to life. Remember Psalm 1, 4, the way of the righteous results in prosperity. In Psalm 1, 4, that word prosper, salah, means to enter into a state of favorable circumstance. In Matthew 7, 14, the term life, zoe, it's in an absolute sense. He's referring not to any life, but to eternal life. And my question for you is this, is there any more favorable circumstance than to receive the blessing of eternal life? Well, what's eternal life? Does that just mean I live forever? No. It means you're living in the bliss of God's presence forever. In Romans 8.13, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Make no doubt about it, the way, the narrow way, requires you to put to death the deeds of your body. Matthew 16.24, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You want to enter the narrow gate. You want to walk the narrow way then you've got to be indwelled and controlled by the Spirit of God. And as such, those who are indwelled and controlled by the Holy Spirit will forsake their sin. They will put to death their self-righteousness and they will follow Jesus. Have you done that? Folks, Jesus is the gate and the, and the way. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He is the way. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And so, my friends, right now, each and every one of you has to consider whether you have entered the narrow gate and you're walking the narrow way. Now, let's look at the rest of verse 13. In contrast to the narrow way is the broad way. Gate, the gate is wide. 
The way is broad. It leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. See, as with the narrow way, the broad way also has a gate. But this gate is wide. It's large. There's no limitation. There's no restriction. Come as you are. There's no repentance of sin. There's no submission to the Lordship of Jesus. You don't have to leave anything behind. You can bring along all your sin. Bring your arrogance, your bitterness, your carousing, complaining, covetousness. Bring your deceit and drunkenness. Bring your greed and gossip. Bring your hypocrisy and your jealousy, your love for the world, your lust, your malice, your murder, your pride, your sexual immorality, your unbelief, your unrighteousness, and your wickedness, to name a few. Bring it all, because you're welcome. Come on, it's a party. Let's go. That gate is wide. You don't got to deny yourself anything. That rich young ruler, he's looking for that narrow gate. He didn't find it because of his greed. He only found the broad gate. And so he went away grieving. In that parable of the marriage feast in Matthew 22, those invitations went out to the many, but they missed the narrow gate. They only found the Broadway. Why? Because they paid no attention and went on their way because of their love for the world. You want to love the world? You want to love the immorality of the world? Hey, babe, I got word for you. You's going to the path of destruction. Take a beat. Get it, get it, get, let your mind wrap around that. Because I am scared to death. I am scared to death that there are many who come to church week after week, go through the motions, do the church gig, but are on the broad way. Sunday you're one thing, Monday through Saturday you're something altogether different. How many of you sitting here before a holy God could say you've truly been born again? How many of you sitting here have genuinely professed repentance and belief in the gospel? Or let me ask you this way. How many of you have professed belief in the gospel but you've never repented of your sin? Go, Come on, pastor, you know me. Listen, they all thought they knew Judas. You can understand how gobsmacked they all were. All I know is the Bible says there's but a few that get through the narrow gate and there are many who enter through the wide gate. Now that word enter here in verse 13. Same word that we saw in the beginning of verse 13. Now here it's not a command, but it's in the middle voice demonstrating the many chose for themselves the broad way. Listen, you're not going to stand before a holy God and say, well, Lord, I didn't have a choice. You made me go this way. Uh, no, that ain't going to fly. You chose for yourself. You didn't want to forsake your sin. You didn't detest your sin. You wanted to eat, drink, and be happy. The disciples in Jewish day, or in Jesus' day, thought, hey, I'm saved because of my hereditary, hereditary relationship to Abraham. There are the many. Maybe it's not your heredity, but maybe <laughs> you think your religious affiliation is going to get you to heaven. Maybe you think your ceremonial ritual is going to get to heaven. Maybe you think your good works are going to get you to heaven. Listen, my friends, the wide gate welcomes all to the broad way. 
It's broad because it's wide, it's roomy, it's spacious. There's plenty of room for your opinions. There's plenty of room for your moral perspectives. In the words of John Stott, it is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. Listen, you hear people talking tolerance and permissiveness? I can tell you what road they're on. And it's not the narrow one. You walk the broad way, I guarantee you've embraced moral relativism. You've cast off moral absolutes. Well, does, that, does the Bible really mean that? Does God really mean that? You've embraced situation ethics. If it feels good, do it. Don't worry what everybody else is thinking as long as you're happy. You've embraced behaviorism. Well, people are just victims of their environment. No one can be held responsible for their actions. I got a word for you. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Listen, you can justify all your sin. You can justify your moral relativity. You can justify your situation ethics and your behaviorism and all that other nonsense. And I got a word for you. You are going to end up in death. It appears to be right. You've justified it. You've made yourself feel good. You've made whoever around you feel good. Just so you can gratify your flesh, their flesh, or whoever else's flesh. You've deceived yourself into thinking you're a kingdom citizen. Again, I read to you Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me in that day, and I pray to a holy God that it's none of you. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform miracles. Did you catch that? They did the church thing. They went around and they talked the talk and they had the Christian lingo and they even did the Christian service. Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Wow. Sobering, huh? The Broadway leads to destruction. That word destruction... There's a specific word, apalia. It's that state after physical death in which you realize you're eternally lost. That's what destruction is. It's that moment after physical death when you realize you are eternally damned. It's called the lake of fire. We're the second death. My friend, the hour is coming in which there will be a day when those who did good will be resurrected to life, and those who committed evil will be resurrected to judgment. Revelation 26, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in that first resurrection. Over those, the second death has no power. You've got a choice. One choice. Two gates, two ways, two resurrections. One leads to eternal life, the other towards the eternal damnation. You want to choose the broad way? You want to continue to revel in your sin? Okay. But let me mark my words. The Bible clearly says you will choose the path of destruction. You will choose the path of damnation. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death.
as Revelation 20.10 says, they will be tormented day and night forever. I'm fearful, my friends, because there are all kinds of charlatans and snake oil salesmen in the name of Christ evangelizing, peddling a false gospel of easy believism. They're telling you, oh, just believe in Jesus. Oh, come to Jesus. Listen, if they are not telling you to repent and forsake your sin, turn them off. Just turn them off. If they're not making mention of the cost of discipleship, if they don't preach deny yourself and bear Christ's cross, turn them off. Oh, listen, they got many people raising their hand and walking an aisle, coming forward, making professions. And I'm telling you, sadly, the many are still dead in their trespass and sin. In the words of Paul, easy believism is a different gospel which is really not another. I have set before you today life and death, prosperity and adversity. There is a narrow way. There is a path that leads to prosperity in life. But there's also a broad way. There is a broad path that leads to adversity and spiritual death. You've got two ways. But my friends, you only have one choice. To genuinely repent of your sin and believe the gospel. You've got one choice, two gates. One choice, two ways. The chosen gate, the chosen way leads either to eternal life or to eternal damnation. My friend, you walk out that door today. There's no guarantee of what happens to any of us. If you die today, where will you spend an eternity? Look at your life over the last year, two years, three years, four years, five years, ten years. Look at your life. Because it's going to tell you right away what path you're on. And if you find yourself on the wrong path, now is the time to get on the right one. Father, Lord of the narrow way, we come to you. We thank you for providing... Jesus, the narrow gate. Thank you for inviting us to enter into your presence through Jesus, your Son. And Father, even now we come denying ourselves and forsaking our self-righteousness. We come to you, Lord, clothed in your Son's righteousness. Father, we confess that broad gate, that broad way is alluring. It's pleasing. It's desirous. Father, we confess that too often our eyes and minds have been diverted in the direction of the broad way. And so by your grace and through your mercy, keep us on the narrow way, Lord. Father, I pray now for those who are seeking, striving even for the narrow gate. Grant them repentance and faith. Father, I pray for those who have professed repentance and faith. Perhaps they've even been baptized. Perhaps they've sat under the preaching of your word. Perhaps they've served in the church but have seemingly fallen away. Father, I'm praying for your mercy. That, Father, if they are genuinely yours, rescue them. I pray, Father, that they have not gone so far that they are beyond repentance. You who are able to do above and beyond all we can ask and hope, we ask you now that you might recover them and rescue them. And so, Father, we give you all praise and all glory, both now and forever. Amen.